Some of you may already know who I'm talking about. Those seven factors are pretty much all you need to know about my story of growing up as a minority white Christian kid in Barrio Van Nuys in Southern California in the late 70s and early 80s. The seven factors are love of sports, caring way too much about the rules, having an advanced vocabulary, kind of a nerd, being a Christian, being white, moving a lot, and having slightly big ears. (laughs) Now that you mention it. Those seven things pretty much tell you everything you need to know about my experience of growing up as a minority white Christian kid in Barrio Van Nuys in Southern California in the late 70s and early 80s. And I tell you all that because somehow the combination of those seven factors uh, meant that I was often in some sort of a, a small fight as a kid. When I look back on my elementary years, I remember feeling like I was always sort of fighting for myself, for my identity, in little skirmishes all over the place in my life. I had this sense that if I didn't fight for me, no one else was going to. (laughs) A few of you might be a little surprised by this because, you know, me being a pastor and all. Uh, But for a few of you, probably a lot of y'all, you probably think, well, maybe this explains some things, actually. (laughs) This explains some things about Scott that I've wondered about here and there. Now, mind you, these were not come-to-blows fights. Uh, That only happened a couple times, and they both lasted about 50 seconds, 15 seconds with no real, you know, sort of punches thrown. These were mostly typical uh, playground skirmishes. But somehow I was always in the middle of them. And and yes, I did make a few trips to the principal's office. Usually got off clean by just admitting, yes, I know I'm a preacher's kid and I shouldn't be behaving this way. And yes, I know that I was wrong and you expect more of me, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I said those things back to them and they would let me go. So we'd be playing some sort of game on the playground, dodgeball, kickball, and things would be fine until someone would start cheating or or playing unfairly. And, And well, of course, I felt, you know, like God invented rules to be followed and they're good and God likes order, right? So someone on those playground games has to be the referee and the scorekeeper and the coach on the field and the sort of universal moral force for all humankind. So I said, why wouldn't that be me? And so in the context of those playground games, I ensured that doggone it, I was going to be the universal moral force for all humankind. So I stepped up to the plate and made sure that was the case. And most of the time, things were fine. And if a little skirmish happened, I would out-talk someone, get out of it, out-think somebody, get out of it, that kind of thing. So fighting for me usually meant using whatever resources I had at my disposal to just kind (laughs) of make the other kid look and feel, you know, less intelligent. Which I know is not kind, was not kind of me as a kid, I'm sorry, (laughs) Jesus. But that was my tactic, out-thinking, out-logicking, out-talking the other person, sort of fighting to make the other kid look less intelligent. Most of the time that worked fine until one time when I was in fourth grade. And the fourth grade bully, who uh, (laughs) 
shall remain nameless in case he watches our Vimeo feed, um, unless he's still alive and wants to settle scores. Uh, the fourth grade bully uh, took great exception with me being the universal moral force of a particular game that day. And, and most of the time I got out of those situations fine, but this one time, this, this bully, this kid in fourth grade, the kid who was already shaving in fourth grade, some of you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, that kid. He took great exception with be, me being the sort of universal force uh, for all humankind. And so he began to threaten me, started to chase me, started to sort of, you know, curse at me in angry Spanish words that somehow made it feel more menacing than normal. Mercifully, I was faster, got away from him, no big deal. But before it all ended, he announced in front of everybody on the playground, he declared in front of everyone that we were going to meet after school and we were going to settle things. He laid down the gauntlet right there and everybody on the playground I remember the look on the faces of a bunch of my classmates that day. Their eyes were wide with fear as if I had crossed a line that everybody knew you never crossed with that fourth grade bully. And I knew at that moment I was in trouble. I think that's the first time in my life I remember thinking and feeling I'm going to die. And it may sound a little funny to say, like we're looking back and we're remembering it with more weight than it you know, deserved, of course. But I remember feeling at the time, I am in, I'm seriously in way over my head. This kid could hurt me. Turned out, I actually settled the score, no lie, by promising the bully that every day at lunch for the rest of the year, he could have my granola bar. That was my peace offering, and we were fine. But that was the first time I remember experiencing the feeling of being in a situation where a force greater than me had threatened me and I needed someone else there to fight for me. And there was no one there to help. That was the first circumstance in my life when I remember feeling like I'm helpless, I'm powerless, I'm in trouble, and if there's not some greater force in that circumstance To help me, I'm going to pay. I'm sure you've been in a situation just like that. Where a force greater than you threatened you. And you needed someone bigger than you to fight for you. Now for many of us, those I'm going to die moments aren't elementary playground skirmishes with granola bar peace offerings. As soon as I asked whether some of you have been in a circumstance where you needed someone more powerful than you to fight for you, you probably thought of things that go way beyond playground skirmishes. Perhaps you thought of traumas you've experienced, pain you've encountered, fears you've known. Abuse you've suffered. As soon as I say, have you ever experienced a circumstance where you felt powerless and helpless and you needed a greater force to come in and fight for you? Uh, A number of you thought and felt, yeah, I've experienced things I don't really talk about. 
They're exactly that. In everyone's life, friends, if we're being real about our lives, there are I'm going to die feelings and moments that go way beyond playground skirmishes. Moments where we need someone more powerful than us to fight for us. Exodus 14.10. Turn with me there if you're not there yet. Exodus 14.10 says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. This was a moment for the people of God when they knew they were in over their heads. The world's most powerful kingdom was on their heels, and they knew that they were in trouble. They knew that they were helpless. Look at Exodus 14.10 again. It says, When Pharaoh, Pharaoh's a generic name for the king of Egypt, he had been oppressing the Jews as slaves to maintain his own powerful kingdom. Exodus 1.4 says that he made their lives bitter with hard service. So when that Pharaoh drew near, it says, the people of God lifted up their eyes. Now press pause for a bit here because we're going to talk about some background before we keep moving on here in the passage. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, The people of God lifted up their eyes. He was drawing near. He was coming after them because just a few days earlier, he he had let them free. He had let them go pretty much because God, you know, kicked their rear end with the the ten plagues. If you'll remember the blood and the frogs and the lice and the boils and the darkness and the firstborn, all those kinds of plagues. So Pharaoh had let them go just days earlier. And, and, And though... They thought they were free. At this moment here, in Exodus 14.10, it had looked like that freedom was short-lived because Pharaoh changed his mind yet again after having let them go. After the ten plagues, he changes his mind again and he was in hot pursuit of the people of God. And so the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and that's what they saw, Pharaoh in pursuit. Now this thing about seeing here is important. It says the people of God lifted up their eyes and behold, what they saw was the Egyptians marching after them and they feared greatly. This thing about seeing is important. What they saw made them fear. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, meaning check this out. This is what they saw. The Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So what they saw made them fear. Fear. Turn back just a few verses for some context here. This is what they saw coming at them in Exodus 14, 5 to 9, just the preceding five verses here, five verses uh, before our passage. This is what they saw that made them fear. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, this is right after the ten plagues, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward the people yet again. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Duh, we need them to help maintain our kingdom, he said. So he made ready his chariot, which means he meant business. He decided to lead this charge himself. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, officers over all of, I'm sorry, took his army with them, verse 7, and took 600 chosen chariots 
and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them, over all of them. He got together. This is his special forces, his elite military forces here. And the Lord, verse 8, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which means that Pharaoh changed his mind just as he had earlier with the plagues. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. Basically, they're at the sea with their backs to the sea. Pharaoh's hot on their tracks. He has them pinned against the wall with the sea at their backs. And so, Exodus 14.10, go back there. They cried out to the Lord. The people of God cried out to the Lord. Now, because Moses was mediator between the people and God, Scripture here treats crying out to him as the same as crying out to God. We'll see the opposite of that in a little bit here. We'll see both here. But here in verse 11, here's what they said to Moses, meaning crying out to God. Verse 11, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? First of all, this is a hilarious example of sarcasm at its finest, by the way. This is one of the finest examples of sarcasm we'll ever come across in all of literature. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? At this point, they saw their fate as death. And listen, if the Pharaoh's finest trained military force is coming right at me, and I've got to see it in my back, and I was just given freedom, but it looks like that freedom's gone suddenly, I'm crying out to the Lord too. And, and I'm saying to my leader, who's supposed to represent me to the Lord, what is going on here? <laughs> this is what they say. This is what they say there in those verses, verses 11 and following. What have you done to us in bringing us out of, out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? This is their I told you so moment. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Like, well done, leader. What's the plan, Moses? Because so far, this is not looking good. We told you to leave well enough alone for us, but no, you had to lead us into certain death. (laughs) They're basically saying it would have been better for us to, to stay in Egypt as slaves than to go to where you want us to go and die in the wilderness. This is the, the we told you so moment. If there were Facebook and, and Twitter back then, the Israelites would have been having a field day with Moses online. I mean, like he would have been getting killed on my Greenville. So, so Moses said this, Moses said this, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see, there's that word, see, contrary to what you saw, see this. He repeats it three times. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. He uses the word see here three times to emphasize that God wanted His people to experience firsthand what it meant to be delivered by God's mighty hand. And so He says it as a contrast with what He said earlier in verse 10, where it speaks of the Jews lifting up their eyes to see the Egyptians. He's saying, you saw this, that's all you saw. You didn't see what we've been seeing and what we're going to see because we have God on our side, not Pharaoh. Their eyes saw fear, but Moses saw God's deliverance 
taking place. Even now, in this moment, back against the wall, nowhere else to go. He was confident because God had promised that he would protect the Jews. And so he knew something's going to happen. He wasn't sure what, but in that moment, he had confidence. Earlier in chapter 14, God had promised Moses. He had told him of his plans. So he declared with confidence, verse 14, this is our key verse, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, this is our key verse today, and it it certainly sounds like a great deal, right? (laughs) Like God fights, we watch. But this isn't as much a word of comfort as it first seems. I mean, it is that. But this is more like saying, stop whining. The Lord will fight for you if you'll just stop talking for a second. It's a little bit of a, the Lord will fight for you. It's a little like that. That's really in the text of the Hebrew there. It's a little bit of a snark there to it. This is Moses declaring to the people, stop talking about how we're going to have to get out of this mess by our power as if we have no recourse. Hello? Recognize that God is the warrior here. Recognize that this fight against Pharaoh is something you and I can only fight if it's something that he fights for us. Yes, in human terms, you have no chance. Yes, that's true. That's true. But that's not the God we serve, he said. There's a power greater than you here to do the work you cannot. This is just a principle of the Bible. This isn't just about the Red Sea crossing. This is a principle of the Christian life. One of the most important things you will ever really understand about the Christian life is there is a power greater than you here to do the work you can't. And Moses is saying, if you'll just, just be quiet enough to see that God has already fought your most important battle against the power of sin you cannot defeat, if you'll be quiet enough to see that, then we can begin to make some progress. The Lord said to Moses, verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Remember we said that Moses as mediator means that for the people to cry to him is the same as them crying to God. This is the opposite. When God speaks to Moses here, it's the same as God speaking to the people. So God is speaking through Moses to the people here in verse 15. He says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward as if you didn't know the plans. (laughs) He has already promised them a land of rest and peace where they would prosper. They knew that the land was on the other side on the other side of the sea, just over the waters where they were actually standing at the time. And so God says, keep moving forward toward the land that I've promised you. No, really. I mean it. This isn't just a figurative thing. Keep moving forward. Now at this point, if you're the Jews, you've got Pharaoh coming at you. And you're at the point of certain death with the sea behind you. God says, keep moving forward. You think, (laughs) how? Instructions to Moses, verse 16. Instructions to Moses about how. 
And notice how God is the main agent here. This is God is your warrior language. Because Moses is passively doing what he tells, what God tells him. It says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. (laughs) No, really, Moses. Divide the waters. Divide the waters that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Oh, so what you had in mind, God, ain't what I had in mind. <laughs> Clearly, when a, when a power greater than us fights for us, there are things going on beyond what we know. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. Again, God is the actor here. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, friends, you may not have Egyptians breathing down your neck. But in reality, the weight of your sin before God is an enemy far worse and far more powerful than an angry Pharaoh. And without the intervention of God, you face certain death. I have a preacher friend. His name's Aaron. Uh, Some of you know that he and I uh, collaborate on sermon prep. And he told me this story uh, that I want to relay to you uh, that illustrates what it looks like, what it feels like when God fights for us. Aaron grew up in a family that owned a large construction business in Indianapolis. And so Aaron was always helping his dad on the job. And there was one time when he was 14 and all of 110 pounds when his dad had him using a 30-pound gas-powered saw to cut through some concrete to form a doorway. Needless to say, poor 14-year-old 110-pound Aaron struggling to make this 30-pound saw cut through concrete to form a doorway. There was no way (laughs) 110 pounds Aaron Weimer was going to get very far cutting into this concrete. He couldn't hold the saw. He couldn't hit the chalk line exactly right. And he he couldn't make sure he did anything without also cutting off his arms in the process. So 15, 20 minutes in, poor Aaron has made no progress whatsoever. There's a tiny little dent in the concrete, and he's not done anything. I want you to listen to how Aaron tells uh, the rest of the story here. He says, that's when... Uncle Phil came around the corner to check on me. A word on Uncle Phil. He was a kind and a gentle uncle for me, except when we were on the job and he was my supervisor. And so Uncle Phil saw my sort of paw marks on the concrete. He took his cigarette out of his mouth, drew a deep breath of my failure into the back part of his lungs, held it for a second, then spat it back at me, transforming the air into loud, angry demands to get the job done. And then he stomped away. 
He says, I stood there, arms like noodles, losing hope. I didn't even pick up the saw. I've been trying for 20 minutes by now, and I knew how picking up the saw would end. (laughs) He says, I was between my Uncle Phil and a hard place. What was the use, he said. Then he says this, and then I heard it. I heard the voice of Willie Holt. Willie spoke with an accent that is familiar to me now, but not back then. He was from Johnson City, Tennessee, and it immigrated to Indianapolis. It says he was six feet tall, and he had been laying block for over 30 years. His hands were rougher and harder than the concrete block he easily lifted into place. He said, Aaron, you want some secrets on how to do that? I turned to see him standing there, backlit with the summer sun. My Savior had arrived. He says, yes, Willie, please. I just can't do it. Willie reached down, picked up the saw, started it, nudged it up the chalk line, proceeded to show and to tell me how to use a steel tooth at the bottom as a pivot point and then lever the top of the saw into the concrete. He loudly explained everything he was doing, showing me how to cut up the right side of the would-be door, showed me how to hold it when I was cutting the top part of the doorway, then how to bring it back down the other side. Then he says this, with about an inch to go. He looked at me with a knowing wink and smile, and he handed me the saw and said, you think you can handle that last part from here? Friends, it is no stretch to say that at our weakest and most vulnerable moment, when our sin has pinned us against the sea, in a moment that means certain death, We have a Savior who lifted up his arms and he said, you think you can handle it from here? The cross is what it looks like for God to fight for us. So we're in a week three of four in a series about baptism. (laughs) What's this got to do with baptism today? Friends, baptism, going under the water to symbolize death and coming up to symbolize life, acknowledges in public that God has fought for you. And baptism is for us a Red Sea crossing moment when we recognize that there is a fight too big for you to handle without God's intervention. Baptism acknowledges that God has looked at our sin, looked at Christ, and He says, I will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's looking at the sea, it's looking at the Egyptians in pursuit, and realizing either you see what God can do to fight for you, And you go through this water or you will die. Friends, perhaps one of us today needs to stand up and to say in the waters of baptism, I worship a God who fought for me. That's what this is. That's what this ceremony is about. It's about saying, 
I have to go through these waters to acknowledge that I worship a God who fought for me. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, we love you because you did what we could not. You gave us a Savior who lived the perfect life we couldn't. Who made a sacrifice we couldn't justly make. And that was raised to new, to new life. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, you're a God who has fought for us to defeat sin. We admit to you that we are powerless. That when it comes to defeating the powers of death and sin, we are utterly helpless. And so we acknowledge that you have done what we can't and you have been our power. You have been our warrior. Though we didn't deserve your grace, your mercy, you chose to give it to us. You chose to love us when we were uh, not worthy of your love. You chose to give us grace when we didn't merit your favor. You've chosen to bless us when what we deserve is death. And you didn't just leave us to our own devices. You, you gave of yourself so that we could know you. We love you for that, Lord. And we ask that you'd continue to shape us after that truth, to mold us after the truth that... Uh, you're a God who has fought for us on the cross and in Jesus. We love you for that, Lord. We love you for making a way for us. We love you for giving us dry ground on which to walk. And we ask that you would give us uh, courage and strength, uh, the encouragement of, of fellow believers to go from this place, to proclaim the truth uh, that what we have was earned for us by you because you fought for us. Make of us men and women who, who tell the story of our lives well in ways that give you glory and give you praise because you alone are worthy of that honor. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Each time we gather in worship, we have what we call a time of invitation which is a response to the gospel, the good news of serving a God who fights for us. And uh, you'll see here T-shirts that say alive, free, forgiven. Um, if this is a time for you to go under those waters to publicly declare your faith in Christ uh, because you haven't among a fellowship of believers like this, one of those 